with us as well. Um, let me see, prayer cards. If anybody has a, a prayer card, we'll collect those now as the... Uh, To say uh, thanks to all those who came to uh, the memorial service yesterday for uh, uh, Reg Henderson, and uh, I know the family appreciated each uh, each person that was there, and uh, uh, a lot of good good memories shared. All right, uh, we are. Continuing this, this series, and we will for the next, uh, next few weeks, uh, The Light in My Darkness. Um, I think that's our screen a little bit. It's uh, a little bit uh, here in the room. is a little dark, right? <laughs> but um, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully work through this. So I'm going to put some names up on the screen here. And... Um, Today's sermon topic applies to each of them at some point in their lives. I'll come back to these names later, but for now, you can see if you can figure out what they had in common. And while you're doing that, I'll just keep on talking for a bit. We all know that person, don't we? You know, the person who seems to be off on an exotic vacation all the time. They post all their fabulous pictures while they're away on vacation. And uh, then they, when they get back, they meet up and they tell you all about it. And, um, and, and then they tell you where they're going next, which is probably going to be sooner rather than later. Or perhaps it's the person on your street who seems to do something to upgrade their house every summer. One year they add a deck, the next it's the hot tub. They landscape the front yard one year, the next they're upgrading their insulation. You see the truck and the workers outside. Always something going on. In the meantime, you're just hoping that your roof lasts until the mortgage is paid off. Right? <laughs> is it just me or do we all know someone like that? Um, as we're coming into summer, we're also coming into reunion season. Family reunions, class reunions, some people have regular work place reunions, and reunions uh, provide this interesting experience as, as we have an opportunity to catch up with people that we haven't seen for uh, a long time. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to fill in the gaps since the last time we saw them. Where have you been? What have you been doing? How's work? How's the family? Um, you know. What's going on? And while it's great to see these people, have you ever come away thinking, how did so-and-so accomplish that? 
And here I am in a completely different situation. Or well, my life would be so different if I'd received the opportunities that, that that person seemed to have fall into their lap. But then there's also the person that you walk away from thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not walking home in their shoes today. I heard a radio interview this week, and it was with a former NBA referee who in 2008 was jailed for betting on games he was officiating. And, and not only that, but passing on information to uh, other, other betters. And there was some organized crime involved and different things. So he's been to jail, he's out of jail, he's now doing this radio interview. Um, he was asked what he's doing now, because he's been out for a long time. And he answered that when he got out of jail, he'd invested in some real estate properties in Florida. And since then, the market had gone up and the value of them had doubled and tripled. And now he's a landlord with a lot of time to play golf. Yeah. So I, I couldn't help, as I'm listening to this, couldn't help thinking, well, that seems very unfair, right? Um, you know. He caused a major sports scandal. He had the FBI investigating him. He went to jail, and now he's rich enough to not to work. And I'm here celebrating that the interest rate on my checking account just moved from 1% to 4%. Right? That should get me an extra couple of dollars every month. It's so easy find ourselves comparing our lives to others. And, and it seems so natural, so ordinary, something everybody does, which is true. But if we're not careful, it can become the monster in our darkness. Now, while I'm not aware of anyone in the Bible having a high school reunion, people have been comparing themselves to each other for an awful long time, sometimes with awful results. And so I want to go back through that list of names that I put up there earlier. See if you made these connections. Cain right there in Genesis 4, realized that God preferred his brother's sacrifice. We're not even told why this was the case. But Abel's sacrifice pleased God, Cain's didn't. And so Cain, oh, that is hard to see, killed his brother. Okay. Sarah, wife of Abraham, Genesis 16, again in 21, becomes jealous of her servant who had become pregnant and eventually had her and her son banished into the desert. Jacob, a couple of generations later, Genesis 25 and 27, he wanted the advantages that his older twin brother Esau 
received. Really, like five minutes should make that much difference in our lives. That just doesn't seem fair. So he deceived his brother, he deceived his father, and he stole his brother's blessing. Something that was very significant in their culture. Judah, one of Jacob's sons, in Genesis 37, we're told that he, was, he and the rest of his brothers were unhappy with the favoritism shown to one of their stepbrothers. Consequence of that, they sold Joseph into slavery. Because that's what you do, isn't it, when you're unhappy with your brother? The people of Israel as a whole came to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5. They demanded a king, but not just any old king. They didn't want to come to God and ask what sort of king they should have. Rather, they said, we want a king like all those other nations round about us. Our lives, our nation, our economy, our security, everything will be better if we're like those other people who clearly have it better than we do, I suppose. So they get a king. In 1 Samuel 18, King Saul um, becomes angry when David, one of his um, soldiers at that point, has a song being sung about him. Saul, they sing, has killed his hundreds and David his thousands, or thousands and tens of thousands. And so Saul becomes jealous again of or angry at David's popularity. I'm the king. They're supposed to sing songs about me, not him. And so he attempts to kill David for several years. Jumping forward, Quite a bit, we come to Ahab, King Ahab. Ahab is making himself sick, sitting in his palace, looking out his window at his neighbor's vineyard. He's like, man, those grapes over there, they're good. There's going to be some mighty fine wine later on this year. I want that. I want that. That's better than my vineyard. Well... His wife gets so sick of him moping around the palace every time he looks out the window that she arranges to have the neighbor killed. And Ahab quite happily then takes possession of that vineyard. Jumping forward to the New Testament, James and John, the apostles, they ask Jesus, hey Jesus, can we sit on your right and your left hand when you get to glory. And uh, that seems kind of innocent, doesn't it? Except how many apostles are there? Yeah, there's 12 of them. And two of them are asking if they can sit on Jesus' right and left hand. Where are the others going to sit? Maybe at their feet? Needless to say, this, what might seem like a fairly simple request, starts an argument among 
the apostles. I'm sure it was a holy argument, but nonetheless, an argument amongst the apostles as they're walking along the road with Jesus. And then Peter, in the passage that was read to us earlier from John chapter 21, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is talking to him and saying, look, I want you to be a leader, Peter. Lead my sheep. Lead my sheep. But then he says, Peter, the day's going to come. You're going to die. And it's going to be tough. He's like, well, that's, that's not real uplifting, Jesus. He looks around and says, let's play this game. If I'm going to die like that, and it's not going to be a lot of fun, what about this apostle? And Jesus just says to him, focus on yourself, Peter. If I want that guy to live forever, it doesn't change your situation. You just focus on your faithfulness. Don't compare yourself to everyone else. It doesn't change your circumstances. Ananias and Sapphira, the last one here. Acts chapter 5, we're not actually told what motivates them, but it seems that they were seeking the church's admiration. Other people had come and given money uh, to the church, had demonstrated generosity, and, and, and had been praised, recognized and praised amongst the amongst the church. And uh, next thing we know, Ananias and Sapphira do the same. But they don't donate all their money. They donate some of their money. And where they go wrong is in saying that the sum, the part of their money, was the whole of their money. Peter says, well, you're not just lying to me. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. And God, in his wisdom, decides that... Uh, that they die, that this example was made at that point in time of the seriousness of that offense. All because they wanted the admiration of the other Christians they were worshipping with. In one sense, the advice, don't compare yourself to others, is straightforward and simple. You can probably go to Hobby Lobby, buy a weathered wooden wall hanging that says something like that. And while we can quickly appreciate the insecurities that feed on the comparisons we make, stopping is easier said than done. What we've just seen in those examples that I've given you isn't just random people from, from Scripture, but it's, it's people starting with Cain and Abel right at the very beginning of the Bible, and then thousands of years later we come to Ananias and Sapphira with everyone in between, and we see this constant comparison or competition between people. You have more than me. You have something I want. I want to be like you. And, and, and it, in each of those occasions... It leads to conflict or disaster. Much of our society encourages 
us to compare and contrast ourselves to others in unhealthy ways. Um, the CDC, I think this week, just put out a warning for uh, teenagers and social media. Because one of the big things on social media is the comparison of young people, well, all people, but particularly susceptible are young people to other young people. As if it wasn't enough to be comparing yourself to those that you go to school with or those in your neighborhood, now they're exposed to the entire world and to the standards or the expectations or the whims or the trends of the moment to, to meet those expectations, to meet those standards. But, but it's not just teenagers, as, as destructive as that is, as uh, the, the rise in mental health amongst teenagers in, by many people has been attributed to, to social media, mental health issues, problems. But it comes to parents, it comes to marriages, uh, where we see people posting their best moments for everybody to see. And as, as we look at other people's best moments, we have this tendency to compare our worst moments. Right? And, and so we, we, we sort of project and we go, oh, that moment that they captured, oh, their life must just be so magical. I bet that baby even changes its own diaper. You know, like they are doing everything right, you know? And, and so we, we, we take that impression, that moment, because none of us want to put out there our worst moments for everyone to see, do we? This is me when I'm really angry because my spouse left something in the sink that I didn't think they should. Photo. We don't do that. This is my child crying after they just got disciplined for scribbling on the wall. No, we, 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 we put out our best face. And in doing so, we set this standard, this expectation for how others should measure their lives. And it may not be deliberately, right? But that's what we're doing. And, and Sunday morning can even be a little bit like that at times. But there's also, we live in a world, as I said, that's filled with this um, urge to compare and contrast. Uh, whether it be sports, right? winners and losers, who's the best? Who's the greatest of all time, right? I, I don't know when it came in, but the, the greatest of all time became the acronym GOAT. You know? And so now, you're, who's the GOAT? You know? Where that used to be a negative thing, now it's a, a positive thing. And, uh, and, and so you can have this, because who's going to be the best? Um, job performance reviews, right? Grades at school. Marketing campaigns. Perhaps the original social media, right? Showing happy couples spending thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on diamond rings. That's what I need to do to, to be happy. Um, and, and so each of these is success and failure, measuring and comparing. And in many ways, the quest for success dominates our culture. Have you been successful at life? 
Now, it's not necessarily the case, but in many instances, your or one person's success means another person's failure. And so, it's a difficult place to be, I think, because people are gone. How do we evaluate that? How do we measure that kind of thing? So I'm not suggesting that comparison can only ever be evil. And I'm not suggesting that you'll end up killing someone if you dare compare your life and circumstances to theirs. All right? Often it's how we process the comparisons that makes a difference. If we were to go to the Psalms or the Proverbs, we would see this comparison between the righteous or the godly person and the wicked person or the foolish person. And, and it becomes a teaching tool there where the, the writer of the psalm, the writer of the prophet, uh, proverb is saying, don't be like this person, be like this person. Right? Without condemning or saying that there's no hope, but as long as they stay like that, life is going to be hard. This is going to be their end result. This can be your end result. Make good choices. Do this this way. Be faithful to God. And, and so comparison, in that sense, comparing oneself to others, is like, who do you want to, what are you going to choose? Where are you going to go in life? It becomes a helpful um, process. Uh, for some people, a negative performance review might prompt them to give up and look for a new job, while others will use that same feedback to work differently or work harder. How we process that information makes a big difference. How could Cain's story have been different? If he'd, if he'd rather than got angry with Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his, what if Cain had instead looked at his own life and said, what do I need to change? What do I need to be do different? How can, what can I do to be pleasing to God? Instead, he said, well, I know how to fix this. I'll just get rid of that person. Then there's only me. God will have to be happy with me, right? You know, God loves murderers. So how we, how we process this matters. And we can learn from the lives of these people in Scripture. I want to close by looking at three Scriptures. The first one is Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Exodus 20 contains the Ten Commandments. Verse 17 comes at the end of, of that. It's the, the last commandment of the Ten. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, male or female, his livestock, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And it's interesting because I suspect that oftentimes we kind of dismiss this, this, this idea of coveting, right? Because it's not murder, it's not stealing. Right? They're kind of the big ones. You know, we know that about the, the Ten Commandments. The big ones are worship God. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, right? And the rest just kind of make up 
rounded up to 10. But I think when we, we pause and we say, you know, what does coveting mean? What, what's that look like? I think where it actually begins is with the comparison. Right in that story of King Ahab, he looks out his window and he sees his neighbor's vineyard. Now I want you to think about the process. If he compared his neighbor's vineyard to his own vineyard, and he said, my vineyard is a lot better than my neighbor's, he would have been happy. Instead, he looks out and he says, oh, he's got something I don't have. I want it. And, and so coveting involves this comparison. Does that other person have something that I don't? I need to compare my life. It, does that other person's marriage have something that I don't? Does that other person's health have something that I don't? Does that other person's children, are their careers or lives, are they something different than mine? Are their you know, vacations? The cars they're always driving, the improvements they're making on their house. Like, we see people doing things that we don't have or can't do. And then we start going, oh, I wish I could do that. You see, it's a, it's a, a negative processing of the comparison. Right? Of saying, I wish my marriage looked like that. I wish my family ran like that. I wish my house looked like that. I wish my garden bed grew as good a food as the garden bed next to me. Right? It becomes coveting. And I think the reason it's in the Ten Commandments is because coveting so often can lead to the stealing, can lead to the adultery, can lead to the murder, can lead to worshipping other gods, you see, it can lead to a lot of the things that have already been talked about because we start saying, I, I, I see that I don't have that, I can't do that, and I want it. And then we take it. And so that really is the monster. And so when we, we, we start looking around and we start noticing things around us that we don't have, it's normal. But where's our mind, where's our heart going to take that observation? Because when it becomes coveting, it often leads then to something else. But it's not all dark. This is the monster, I think, in the darkness of comparison. As I mentioned before, it can be a learning experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, I think this is the light in that darkness. Comparison can help us grow. Paul, in, in this uh, passage, writes to the Corinthian church. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Follow the example of Christ. So, he's looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, I need to model my life on him. I need to compare my life. I need to, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation versus what would Peter do in this situation? Right? I need to make Good choices. So comparing our lives to godly people, comparing our lives to Scripture, comparing our lives to Jesus, um, 
while sometimes we might say, oh, that's a little depressing because I seem to fall short an awful lot. That's a very high standard. Um, it's still what we strive for. Again, it's that attitude. Work on those gaps that we identify. But I think the, the biggest light in the darkness is when we, we think about the comparison, I think a lot of times it has to do with our own sense of identity, our own sense of self-assurance. Who are we? What value do we have? Do I have worth? Because if I compare myself to everybody else with the nice cars, the nice houses, nice families, the nice marriage, the nice, like, they've got all that, what have I got? Right? It could be on the job. Oh, that other salesperson is so much better than me. What am I even doing? I don't know what my value is here at this company. If I don't have value here, am I going to have value there? Anywhere, if I don't have value anywhere, why am I even here? You see, it can become this sort of snowball of negative thoughts. But it begins with looking around and going, oh, somebody's better than me at something else. Somebody's got more value than somebody else, than, than I do. And so I, I think Jesus' words, I know we, we referenced this last week, but Jesus' words, uh, God's words rather, to Jesus at his baptism. I, I love that, that he begins by saying, begins Jesus' ministry by establishing his identity. It, it, I, I'm going to put some words in God's mouth and I hope he'll forgive me for this, but I think he's saying that, Jesus, there are going to be many times where you're going to encounter opposition. And you may question whether you're doing the right thing. Have you done what you were supposed to do? Because why, why this opposition? Is the opposition meaning that you did something wrong, you said something wrong? Um, you know. but, but he says, what I want you to know from this moment, as you have baptized, as you accept your mission to, to um, ultimately to go into the cross, you know, to... He, say, he says, I want you to know this. Wherever you go, whatever happens to you, you are my son whom I love. You are my son whom I love. If you think of the parable of the prodigal son, it's, it's much the same, right? It's the, the father and the, and the son says, Dad, I've had enough. I want out of here. And he, he goes to a far land. But even though the father doesn't verbalize it when the son goes away, the son can come back and he knows of all the places in the world that he can come back to. He can come back to his father's house because he knows without seeing, without hearing what's going on, he knows that he is his father's son and that he is loved. I think that's what God is telling Jesus. And, and he says the same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, as Jesus gets closer to the cross, he again reminds Jesus, you are my son, whom I love. Because that's important. It makes a difference. Now Jesus isn't insecure about whether God loves someone else more than he loves him. He just knows, no, I'm God's son. I'm loved. I've said three verses, but 3a is also very important for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The Spirit that each of us received 
doesn't make you slaves. You don't need to live in fear again. Rather, the spirit that you received at your baptism brought about your adoption to sonship. Just like Jesus. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit who lives within us isn't just a seal that our sins are forgiven. Isn't just a seal that we've done something right or that we've been baptized. He says the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life confirms to us that we have been adopted by God. And as people who have been adopted by God, we now get to call him Father. And we know how the Father has already treated his son. He's not going to say to Jesus, You are my beloved son, whom I love. And say to the rest of us, you guys are what the cat dragged in, and you're welcome to eat at my table, but you're never going to be loved. Right? What he says to Jesus, you're my beloved son, whom I love. He also says to each of us, you are my daughter whom I love. You are my son, whom I love. You are my child, whom I love. And how do we know that? Because Jesus went to the cross. Because God loved the world. And so when it comes to comparing ourselves, the best comparison we can make is, am I loved by God? And the answer is yes. And then the the, the next comparison is, is that person loved by God? And the answer is also yes. Is that person a child of God? Well, they may or may not have made that commitment. But there is no Yes plus, <laughs> right? There is no, you know, I am a silver yes. That person's a platinum yes. Right? There is just yes. You are loved by God. That's our identity. And so what happens when we do the other comparisons, when we begin coveting, when we become insecure, is like we are valuing those improvements on our house. We are valuing our job performance and our abilities, we're evaluating our athletic abilities, we're evaluating our musical or artistic abilities, we're we're evaluating these things and finding our value in them, or our lack of value in those areas, when our true value is in God saying, you are my child whom I love. I wonder if you'll just say that with me. I am God's child whom he loves. Amen.